and the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Vision given to the prophet Isaiah of fruitfulness, abundance, and growth. The opening of blind eyes and deaf ears, glorious liberty, leaps, and bursting forth of tongues. It's the new life coming with the redemption of the Lord and the abundance of his kingdom. Always struck by the contrast between this vision of Isaiah and what he was presented with back in the sixth chapter at the time of his calling. If you remember again, he's finally empowered to hear the Lord's call, to respond to it. Here am I, send me. And the Lord says, go and say to this people, hear and hear, but do not understand. See and see, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people fat and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Talk about that in terms of he's going to preach God's word, but the effect on the people is that they're going to shut their eyes, stop up their ears, harden their hearts, turn away from him. And if you follow then through the chapters that follow, you find a people who are not looking to the Lord in hope. They're looking to things in the world around them to solve their problems. And the more they look at the world around them, the more the darkness encloses them, the more they despair, the less they look to the Lord. And when they look up, they look only to curse. But Isaiah, faced with that vision that's not really fruitful, asks, how long, O Lord, how long do I need to do this? If these words sound familiar, well, we keep coming back to them. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without men, and the land is utterly desolate, and the Lord removes men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it shall be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I've talked about that part of the vision where it's the sense that all that they have built up themselves, all of the things that they're glorying in in their own lives are being stripped away. All the things that they've built will be cut away. There's a real devastation that is their uh, barrenness, except in the midst of all of that is the stump the rooted piece in the ground that is the holy seed. And we've been picking that up recently at Isaiah 11 when you see the the shoot that's coming forth from the stump or the stem of Jesse and you've got the sense of that life that is there. But I'm struck as well by this in the light of what Jesus taught his apostles, taught his disciples when he spoke about parables. And actually while the... When he said why he was teaching in parables, he went back to the words of Isaiah. There's something necessary about speaking that truth that it's got to get in more deeply. It's got to get in more simply than the words that they catch with their ears. But he speaks at that point about his parable of the sower. And think of these words of Isaiah in the light of that. 
Think about the sower going out to sow the seed, where you're reminded that the seed is the word of the kingdom. It's the word of God. It is good seed always. Where it grows and how it grows is dependent upon the state of the soil, how it's received, the openness. It bears the fruit where it is received. And again, you can go back and where you've got the the pathway, the word is snatched away and it doesn't get in at all. And that's very much part of that vision in Isaiah 6 of the devastation where there's nothing growing, where there's nothing getting in, there's nothing that's been laid hold of. It's only surface growth and when the devastation comes, everything is raised, except that which bears the roots. Everywhere else, With that parable of the sower, there is growth, but only in the good soil. Is there the lasting growth? Is there the the fruit that's brought to maturity? It's where there's the real hope in the Lord, where there's the looking to him, taking hold of that life that he gives. Further in the background for me, when I think about this business of growth and fruitfulness and what produces it, I think about St. Paul's words in Ephesians 5 when he draws the contrast between what he calls the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Where the works of the flesh are the things that we do of our own initiative, of our own, well, the things we take some pride in, except ultimately they produce things that are very much self-centered, that are bound up with this world, that don't have any lasting value. In fact, uh, what he describes there is a little bit hard and um, unattractive. But in contrast is the fruit of the Spirit that grows, where the fruit comes not of the efforts, our own personal efforts, but by who we are in the Lord. So Jesus will talk elsewhere about a good tree producing good fruit, a bad tree producing bad fruit. The one cannot produce the other. It's by their fruits that you will know them. The fruit comes from what the planting is, where it's rooted, where the life, what's the source of the life. Okay, Isaiah's vision is of those who are looking to the Lord in hope. What's being produced is not what they're doing, it's what the Lord is pouring out upon them, what he's doing in and through them. You can again, that section of Isaiah that moves from 6 through 2.11 you get the word about the people who walked in darkness who have seen a great light. It's not what they've manufactured, it's what they get as they look to the Lord. They're lifted up in that hope. He brings his redemption in their lives. And the last part of that vision today is of the people who are brought home, the redeemed of the Lord, or the ransomed of the Lord. Some of us know that chorus, therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. I mention the words just for those who have that chorus in your heads. It'll now play for the rest of this, so you can at least be blessed by that, even whatever else you take in. The patience, the waiting on the Lord. It's there that James picks up things in talking about awaiting on the Lord a patience that he describes as that of the farmer who's working the land. In Georgos, it's literally the ones who work the land. There's a patience. Now, 
In Greek, there are two primary words that are used for patience. One of them, the standard that's translated there, hupomone, is the is quite literally the abiding, the remaining, the standing under. Um, literal sense of the word. What we often think of as patience. We endure things. We wait for them. We put up with the waiting. And there's much to be said for that one, bearing up under the struggle, but holding fast. But the other one is macrothumia, one that's more literally the long-suffering. That's how the King James has translated things. And for me, there's a strong difference between the two words. The one, so often when we're being patient, and I've talked about this before in terms of waiting for someone, And if I'm waiting for someone, especially someone who's late, I'm sitting there sometimes getting a little bit anxious, getting a little peeved, twiddling my thumbs, whatever, trying to kill time. I'm waiting for the other person. There's a contrast between that and the waiting on someone, waiting upon the Lord. And particularly, I've highlighted it before as being the kind of waiting that you do if you're a waiter or a waitress in restaurant, if you're serving people somewhere, to wait upon them doesn't mean that you sit there and roll your eyes at how long they're taking. You actually attend to their needs. You're waiting upon them is looking for them, paying attention to them. And the waiting on the Lord that his people are called to is not the waiting for him so much as the waiting on him, paying attention to what he's doing. And there I've used the what I consider the classical example after the resurrection, after the ascension, when Jesus says, wait, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. They aren't just killing time. They're trying to figure out what it is that they're supposed to be doing because this is coming. How do we know it'll be here any moment? So they're paying attention. They're watching. They're thinking, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, we need a 12th apostle. Let's get on with that. We meet together, we pray together, we watch for what the Lord is doing so we can be part of that. And so when he comes, he'll find us ready, doing what he gave us to do. Well, think about the farmer too. The farmer does not just open up a hole in the ground and throw in the seed and then go off and sit at home until it's harvest time. The farmer attends to the crops that are there in the field. Sometimes it takes a lot of care. The weeding, the watching, the nurturing along, waiting for the the rains that come, but paying attention if the rains don't come quite when you expect. Maybe things are drying out and you have to get more water out there. But it's an attentive watching and waiting. Well, the word that's used there for the patience now is the long-suffering word. It's not just enduring, it's actually entering into things, being attentive, an active kind of waiting. I've talked different times about, for me, the, a very significant thing in coming to a Catholic understanding of, of suffering in particular. I come of a tradition where where there have been some people very able, very capable in bearing up under immense suffering. And that whole business of enduring, remaining tough and bearing the burden is there. 
what was unique in that Catholic perspective was this sense that you don't have to just put up with it, that you actually can offer it up. And even the little inconveniences, even the small sufferings, rather than just putting up with them, which regularly focuses on yourself, well, Lord, I'm going to hang in there and I'm going to be tough. Instead, you offer it up for someone else. You offer it to the Lord. It's a sacrificial offering. It's a whole different kind of patience. Well, it is the long-suffering kind of patience. It is that active waiting, paying attention to what he's doing, but even taking those things that you don't want to have to bear, that rather than just, again, just kind of saying, well, Lord, if I have to, I will, actually picking up willingly and saying, Lord, I'm going to carry this and I'm going to give it to you. And right there, there is someone I know who is struggling. Well, Lord, I can't be part of that struggling, but let me offer up what I am struggling with, offer it on that person's behalf. The active entrance in. One of the things that all that means is that we don't just bear it on our own, but we bring it to him. That this real patience is not just waiting for the Lord, but waiting on him, attending to him. And then I think about the gospel, and I think about dear John in prison. John the Baptist, who has been so bold in the things of the Lord, no one more obedient than John in doing what he's given to do, heedless of the cost, and the cost is great. Now he's in prison, and he's hearing things about Jesus. He can't see them firsthand anymore. He sends his disciples with the question, are you the one who is to come, or do we look for another? And there are those who read that as John being in the state most of us would probably be in, of some frustration, of some depression, some despairing even. Lord, what's going on? Where is this kingdom? I'm fulfilling the words of Isaiah, and he talks about the captives being released, and here I am bound. He's talking about this freedom and release from bondage, and yet the oppressors are still over us. Where are these signs? Where is this kingdom? It may be that John is sending his disciples with that legitimate concern because he's doubting. But as you go back through some of the church fathers, you find that they very much assume that John does know that this is the one. He's had the evidence. I mean, he's borne witness to others. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I was given the sign. I was told that the one upon whom you see the Spirit come and remain, he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I've seen it. I know. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. He's the one. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. When the bridegroom comes, I get out of the way. Does John know? Is it rooted in him? Well, maybe he's having some waves. But their perspective was that John knows firsthand because he's encountered Jesus. What he wants for his disciples is not just his testimony. He wants them to see firsthand. He wants them to go to Jesus. And they go, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, well, yes, of course I am. I'm the one John was looking for. Go back and tell him. No, he says, tell John what you see and hear. 
what you're encountering, give him that witness. Let him know that you have seen, that your hearts are being moved. Come to Jesus. Encounter him firsthand. Interestingly enough, John has done that. And Jesus will bear testimony to how great John the Baptist is. There's no greater testimony that Jesus gives to anybody than to John. There's no one greater born of women than John the Baptist. You think he's a prophet? Well, yes, he is, but he's more than a prophet. This is the one of whom Malachi was speaking. This is the messenger who goes before the Lord. This is the one who in his coming is going to fulfill the ministry of Elijah and the turning of hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. This is the one who's going to make the way ready the way of the refiner's fire. And yet, and yet, here's one who has seen Jesus, to whom Jesus has come, and he's baptized him. But the Lord will say strangely that for all of that, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And we're reminded that while John has baptized Jesus, he hasn't yet received the baptism of Jesus. Though John has pointed to him, he has not yet entered into the heart of that kingdom because it's not simply that birth of women. It's not simply what John has done. It's what the Lord does in and through him. Unless one is born again, born Anothen, born of God from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom. The heart of all this new life of the fruitfulness is not, again, just believing things about Jesus. It's being in Christ and he in us. It's about entering into that life of the kingdom. The kingdom is not just something that is coming. It's someone. When Jesus points to what's going on, it's, yes, the works of the kingdom. But the last thing that he says is, and blessed is he who takes no offense in me. That word for, for offense in the Greek is scandalon. We think of scandal. We think it's the stumbling stone that is there. The one who gets stopped at him, who stumbles over him. Well, they're the ones who are obsessed with themselves. They're the ones who are not looking to God in hope. The ones who come to him, who come to find that life in him, who come to abide in him, to open their lives to him. It's the life that is in Jesus Christ. We are to wait upon the Lord. Advent is a season that really reminds us of that. The waiting on Him is the coming to Him, attending to Him, opening our lives to Him, meeting Him as He comes in the Blessed Sacrament, meeting Him as He comes to us in our lives of prayer. We're not always going to feel all of that. We're not always going to, to know it as thoroughly as we need to, but what we hold on to is not our, our feelings, not what we do of ourselves, but unto His promise. 
and to the hope that we have in Him. And one more time, one more time back to that hope. The Christian hope is not as the world so often speaks of hope. It's not just a wistful, wishful sense that these things might be true. It's a substantial thing because we hope in Christ, the One who is promised. And His Word is trustworthy and true. It's not just a word about God. It is the Word who is God. It is Emmanuel who is with us. And frankly, through everything else that Isaiah had to say through that section, as people are turning away and stopping up their ears, he is bearing witness to the fact of Emmanuel, saying to them in the midst of their apostasy, turn back to God, because as he promised, he is with us. He is Emmanuel. This is the land of Emmanuel. God with us. And as we look to Him, as we enter into that patient waiting upon Him that is the long-suffering way, offering it all up to Him, but knowing that He is with us and at work within us, He will fulfill His promises. In His time, He will do what He has said He will. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the lily, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away.